The enigma of the Soviet Union has gone back to the days of the Bolshevik Revolution. For many, it remains an enigma, but not for our guest this evening, who is Professor Anthony C. Sutton. Certainly, Anthony Sutton is one of the finest writers that we have within the conservative movement today. So these ideas that Sutton is bringing up through his works, uh, showing how the Bolshevik Re Revolution, the whole Cold War, everything was Western financed, and that was all a sham. He's saying, it's like, this history has been here, and he was the first guy to do that work for Stanford, and he got fired for it. Hello, everyone. This is something of a follow-on podcast to my recent one on the Russian Revolution. In that episode, I examine the claim of historian Anthony C. Sutton that Wall Street and the wider American political establishment had secretly supported the Bolsheviks coming to power. Whilst acknowledging a certain hyperbole, I suggested that this position is so fringe within the mainstream as to never get mentioned, and so mainstream within the fringe as to be taken for granted. I went into that investigation genuinely not knowing what I'd end up concluding. I expected to be left sitting on the fence, and was surprised by the extent to which I felt confident proclaiming that Sutton had gotten it wrong. Whilst he highlights many interesting facts regarding American businessmen trying to co-opt the Bolsheviks, I found his evidence for a well-thought-through plot to kneecap Russia by giving it communism flawed. At the end of the episode, I was left with a lot of material on the cutting room floor. If I'd included it, it would have made the podcast less about Russia and more about Anthony Sutton. Given his influence amongst both conservative and alternative historical thinkers, however, I thought it would be worth doing something with it. There may well be a lot of interesting and novel information in Sutton's work, although I did notice many of his insights into the Wall Street Bolshevik connection are present in John Dos Passos's 1962 book, Mr. Wilson's War. I'm not passing any comment here on Sutton's writing on the rise of Hitler, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or US-Soviet technology transfers. I do think it has to be highlighted, however, that he does say some very strange things. As an example, let's look at his thoughts on the Challenger spatial disaster of 1986. Well, there were eight um, American failures, but there were also three French, the um, uh, Ariadne rocket, the French rocket. They also had three failures in a row. Statistically, uh, that that succession of failures would come about, uh, knowing what we do about the reliability of these rockets, statistically you're looking at one in 250 million. Now, if you want to believe that one in 250 million chance is acceptable, then go ahead. I believe fully, and I wrote within a, within a week of Challenger going down, that this was clearly sabotage. Given how new and innovative rocket technology is, I seriously doubt it's possible to calculate the probability of failure, then start multiplying probabilities to prove sabotage. It actually sounds kind of obviously ridiculous, and I'm not aware of Sutton offering any proof of his claim. That's one point. Statistically, quite clear it was sabotage. The second point is that, as you know, the Soviets always monitor from fishing, so-called fishing vessels, which are actually electronic espionage vessels. They monitor the, um, the launching from Cape Canaveral. Uh, they, they have these vessels offshore, which, uh, radio the, uh, which monitor the radio communications. About two hours before Challenger left the launch pad, 
the Soviet vessels took off at flank speed. They left the launch area. The first time they've ever done this. So that's subsidiary evidence that the Soviets knew that Challenger, the launch, was going to be a failure. Why would these pseudo-fishing boats take off at flying speed? Were they concerned about being pursued by the US Navy or being hit by debris from the Challenger? And how does Sutton know any of this? So you've got one, the statistical probability, two, the fact that the Soviet monitoring vessels left the area about two, three hours before the launch. And thirdly, I understand from sources, the KGB had a big party in Moscow that same night. So Sutton has sources, plural, that inform him as to what the KGB are up to in Moscow. Couldn't it just have been someone's birthday? More seriously, this does raise the question of who is funneling Sutton this information and why. Without saying the probabilities of each method, let me give some of the ways in which they could have brought about this. First of all, as we might get into later, we know the Soviets using the Tesla techniques for modifying the jet stream, for modifying weather. Uh, they had been modifying the weather, we suspect, uh, to the extent that particularly cold weather came down over Florida at the time of the Challenger launch. What does this mean? It, it has an effect on the, the solid fuel itself, and you always get a problem of vibrations in these types of launches. And there is a possibility that the cold air uh, created uh, perhaps an unstoppable um, uh, vibration and these vehicles are really they look tremendous they look strong but actually they're very susceptible uh, to structural failure and given um, a certain amount of vibration there's no question these vehicles will fail uh, so you've got one possibility the alteration of the jet stream through Tesla techniques plus their knowledge of, uh, of vibration secondly they, they could use laser weapons from offshore um, they could even use perhaps as something as innocent as a 303 rifle shell, um, which would penetrate uh, uh, by the O-rings, and then I think the video shows a little puff of smoke coming out of the O-ring, and then, this, then the, the whole rocket blew apart beginning at that point. So there's a variety of techniques they could have used. I don't know which they used, but I'm quite sure they did use one of them. Who is the we that suspects the Soviets were modifying the weather over Florida? And did Russians really have lasers that could take out spaceships in the 1980s? It's amazing they were ever thrown out of Afghanistan with technology like that. I bet they're coming in really handy in the Ukraine war. Also, Sutton has it that rocket ships are both so robust that the chance of a succession of failures is hundreds of millions to one, but so flimsy as to be susceptible to a bit of cold weather. Uh, about six months before, the, um, the Challenger blew up and the, the series of uh, explosions began the previous August. So before even the previous August explosion, the uh, captain, I forget his name, but who was in charge of training all recovery officers on the, on the test ranges defected to the Soviet Union. That man knew the failures of every one of our rockets. He could have told that to the Soviets. He would, they would then know about the vibration weaknesses and uh, structural weaknesses. It's disappointing or convenient that Sutton can't remember this defector's name, as it turns a verifiable claim into a wild assertion. A list of Western Bloc defectors is available on Wikipedia, and none of them fit the description Sutton provides. Additionally, 
If this defector informed the Soviets that American rockets were susceptible to cold weather, does that not imply NASA would have known this too? Imagine if the KGB went to all the trouble of lowering the temperature across the whole eastern seaboard, only to have NASA postpone the launch, because they have thermometers? Sutton also makes predictions that haven't worked out so well. You've got the same thing in Afghanistan today, where they, yes. with our State Department going along with it, where the Soviets are putting out the feelers they want to withdraw, and our State Department is saying, well, this is acceptable. Deception. Glasnost is another deception, if we can come up to date. This interview was recorded in July of 1987, just after the Soviets had announced their intention to withdraw from Afghanistan. By early 1989, they had completely left the country. Whilst I certainly wouldn't claim modern-day Russia is a beacon of open and transparent governance, Gorbachev's policy of Glasnost clearly moved the country in that direction. Sutton also has some questionable interpretations of current events. So they, they doom these countries, whether it be the Soviet Union in 1917 or Nicaragua today, they doom these countries to Marxist dictatorship so that they can be controlled uh, from the economic and the political and financial viewpoint through what I see as the coming New World Order. Throughout the 1980s, the United States supported the Contras, the anti-Sandinista, anti-communist fighters in Nicaragua. It's entirely implausible Sutton didn't know this. Inevitably, at some point, that is going to, there's going to be a global shift of power. We shall then become increasingly under Soviet dominance. You can see that in Europe. Uh, you can see the Soviets penetrating into the Indian Ocean, into Central America, into Africa. They're feeling very sure of themselves. That's one thing. Secondly, you've got a whole new area of weapons systems, which I suspect are being used, in fact, I know are being used. We apparently, officially, don't even know they're being used on us. This whole area of psychotronic warfare, uh, we, we know it's being used. But when you look at, say, the reactions of State Department, uh, they act as if it is not being used. What do I see ahead? I see a, a showdown coming with the West and the Soviet Union, maybe around the year 2000, 2010. What kind of a showdown? Bluff. Bluff. They'll be preceded by psychotronic warfare. They will, they will uh, behavioral modification of our leaders. Uh, Soviet Union actually is a very weak country. I mean, uh, we could, I suppose, if we wanted to, neutralize it. I could see a, a gigantic bluff in which the U.S. is told uh, to surrender, or it'll be uh, atom-bombed. And I think with behavioral modification, that they could well twist a, uh, a surrender out of a uh, compliant administration in Washington. Politicians are weak by nature. They're compromisers. And the Soviets know that. And you get a combination of the political, political makeup plus psychotronic warfare. I can see uh, a bluff being uh, pulled off in 10, 20 years. Sutton is speaking at a time when the Soviets were drawing down their foreign military involvements, four years before the dissolution of the Union. The two most consequential blocks of that Union are currently at war with each other. As confident predictions go, 
Moving on, let's look at who may be benefiting from Sutton's predictions. The following clip follows on from Sutton addressing the problem of the Pentagon transferring technology to the USSR. The Pentagon's a puzzle. Uh, you have men there like Stephen Bryant, who unfortunately just left. Uh, Stephen Pearl, uh, Bryant and Pearl, Richard Pearl. Richard Pearl just left. These men are aware of this. They fight against it on a daily basis. They fight against transfers on a daily basis. Richard Pearl is these days perhaps most famous as a neoconservative architect of the Second Iraq War. He pushed the false claims that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and a connection to Al-Qaeda. During the 1980s, he opposed arms limitations treaties with Russia while supporting the failed Star Wars Defense Initiative. In his role as Assistant Secretary of Defense, he recommended that the army purchase an armament system from an Israeli company that only a year earlier had paid him $50,000 in consulting fees. Pearl is Jewish, and in 1970 was caught discussing classified information with a contact at the Israeli embassy. He was also paid $125,000 to promote the sale of a telecommunications company to a Chinese firm. The company dealt with the FBI and Pentagon communications, and the military argued that the sale would jeopardize national security. Pearl advocated for US citizens to have biometric ID cards to help fight the war on terror, of which he said, quote, For us, terrorism remains the great evil of our time, and the war against this evil, our generation's great cause. There is no middle way for Americans. It is victory or holocaust. End quote. The other name Sutton mentions, Stephen Bryan, was, in 1979, accused of offering classified documents to Mossad station chief in Washington, D.C. It is funny that the two men Sutton holds up as exemplars of the good fight against technology transfers to the Soviets have themselves both been credibly accused of espionage and acting against the United States' national security interests. Both did so prior to Sutton's lauding of them. Did he not know? Sutton talks about being fed information by certain insider contacts. But I'm a little out of touch with my sources. Um, uh, they only show up uh, every so often they send me another batch of material. I've not had any contact for about 18 months now. These anonymous packages? Oh yeah. They, they keep sending the anonymous packages. Um, I've not had anything for 18 months now. That's for real, anonymous packages. Yeah, they, they are anonymous keep... packages, yes. Yeah, yes. That is for real. Um, Somebody on the inside wants you to know. Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, I better not give my suspicions. No. In Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Sutton writes against anti-Semitic conspiracy theories proposing Jews orchestrated the Russian Revolution. He speculates that, maybe, these have been deliberately interjected to cover up the real truth of what went on. Is it fair to speculate, then, that this critique might also apply to Anthony Sutton himself? Was he being fed disinformation by his establishment contacts to disseminate an anti-communist, anti-Russian agenda? Whatever the answer, and whatever value Professor Sutton brings, his information should clearly be treated with the utmost circumspect and never uncritically accepted.
Before concluding, I'd like to talk about one further thing I eventually noticed in the interview I've been taking these snippets from. Anthony Sutton might be only the second most famous person present. Elizabeth Clare Proffitt, noted author, lecturer, educator, and religious leader, interviews revolutionaries in every field who provide the missing dimension to the news that affects you. I'd wager that the vast majority of people who have listened to this particular interview of Sutton paid little or no attention to who the interviewer was. I certainly didn't, until after enough replays, curiosity crept up on me. Elizabeth Clare Prophet was a prominent spiritual teacher and author who founded an organisation called the Church Universal and Triumphant. This emerged from the doctrines of theosophy, Christian science and new thought and included practices such as prayer, meditation and channeling divine messages. On the darker side of the spectrum, Prophet also believed in evil angels taking on human form. Once we... Uh can agree upon a capitalist communist conspiracy, uh, then we have to study the nature of the power elite and the super rich and the people who have the feeling that they control the planet and that we belong to them and uh, we are uh, used by them to their ends. And I had a very interesting uh, speaker once who was a professor who had done a lot of research on the profiles of the power elite who very much uh, assisted my theory concerning the fallen angels in embodiment, which we get from the texts of Enoch. So uh, that is one of the other components to my worldview, which I don't expect people to accept. But I do believe that there is a breed and a life wave on this planet. Um, I believe that um, they have to do with a fall, a descent, such as the scriptures of East and West tell us, and that they have descended and that they have taken embodiment. Theologians throughout the ages have argued against this uh, because they don't want to accept that uh, there are evil angels or that they are in embodiment. But this is a type of person who has no national loyalties, mm -hmm. uh, who is capable of running large corporations and uh, starting wars, using wars uh, for effecting change and so forth. Uh, if you look through history, you can identify these figures and you can identify them today. So to me, all of that makes sense. Around the same time Prophet interviewed Sutton, she predicted that the Soviet Union was going to launch a nuclear first strike against the United States. She advocated for the construction of missile defence systems, President Reagan's Star Wars boondoggle. She also advised or instructed her followers to move to Montana and construct nuclear fallout shelters. With a capacity for 756 people, the main one ended up being the largest private underground bomb shelter in the United States. Her group is also said to have amassed an arsenal of weapons and armoured vehicles. What exactly happened next is a little ambiguous, but Prophet seems to have predicted that a nuclear strike would take place in March of 1990. On the 15th day of that month, hundreds or even thousands of church members went into the shelters in anticipation. When it didn't happen, Church officials claimed it had been a drill, although members are said to have quit their jobs and were up large debts, believing the end was nigh. I'm certainly not blaming Anthony Sutton for these events, 
but it's also clear his flawed research, the narrative he constructed from it, and the excessive confidence which with he presented it, played into Elizabeth Clare Prophet's delusion. It gave her the impression there was more of a material basis for her spiritual insights than was really the case. It's very important for us to understand, first of all, that uh, capitalists and communists have, are not enemies. They have never been enemies. And uh, in my opinion, they're in a conspiracy together, which I've called the International Capitalist-Communist Conspiracy. And to that conspiracy theory of mine, uh, you have provided tremendous data and documentation over the years. And you have brought that to the American people. You've told me in other interviews uh, that no one on the left or the right has ever argued with the facts. Oh, yes, that's uh, true. And of course, I didn't know you when I was writing the books. I accidentally proved you right without knowing you or that you oh, made the thesis. Oh, yes, definitely. I'm not implying you wrote the books no, no, deliberately of course. for me. And of but... course, this left-right uh, <laughs> left -right thing is nonsense. Uh... Three years prior to the nuclear shelter incident, Sutton would refer to the group as an oasis of sanity. The effect of Sutton's work was then to take a group of New Age spirituality types and lead them into supporting neoconservative anti-communist conspiracies, increased Pentagon spending and missile defence systems. Essentially, Sutton succeeded in getting New Agers and conspiracy theorists to line up behind Prince of Darkness Pearl. That is no small achievement. Elizabeth Clare Prophet's daughter, Dr Erin Prophet, wrote a book titled Prophet's Daughter about her experience and reflections growing up in her parents' church. She has described her mother as a kind of spiritual pioneer. Pioneers go to places without maps, places that no one has seen before, trying out new ideas. Some of those ideas are greatly beneficial. Others don't work out. Erin Prophet says that in her book, she tries to reflect both her mother's greatness, but also highlight the things she did that did not work out well. Perhaps Anthony Sutton is an historical pioneer, highlighting novel facts and exploring the world in new and important ways, but also travelling down blind alleys and being led astray by bad actors. I wouldn't discourage people from entertaining grand globalist conspiracies, or even ones ultimately headed up by fallen angels. I would however issue caution that these territories are treacherous, false images can become all too compelling, and the mistakes can be far from consequence-free. Thank you for listening. If you find this content valuable and would like to support its production, there are links to both donation and subscription pages in the info box. Additionally, doing things like leaving book reviews on Amazon or podcast reviews on platforms or subscribing to whatever channel you're listening to this on are really helpful too. Thanks again.